Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to the man who co-wrote this song right here. This is a classic. I wonder if you recognize it. It is the original version of Video Killed the Radio Star, and it was co-written by our guest, Bruce Woolley. Bruce has a very fascinating story. If you don't know that name, you know lots of things he's done. Back in the 70s, he becomes very good friends with a very young Trevor Horn. And the two of them start working together and writing songs like this one. Well, they go off and do their own thing. Trevor goes off and starts the Buggles. And Bruce goes off and starts the Camera Club, which is a group that's kind of known for other young members of the band, which are Thomas Dolby, Matthew Seligman, who's been on here before. This band, they only ever put out one album, but it's really good, but they it never quite goes anywhere. But that partnership, that original friendship with Trevor, is something that has been a common thread throughout Bruce's entire career. Still goes on to this day. And because of that, Bruce ends up going and working with a lot of Trevor's artists, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and, more importantly, Grace Jones. In fact, Bruce writes Slave to the Rhythm, which is one of my all-time favorite songs, and has worked closely with Grace ever since. Along these same lines, he also writes songs that go on to be recorded by people like Cher, John Farnham. We talk about all of this in here. What's also really interesting is that part of Bruce's career includes something called the Radio Science Orchestra, which is a project that he does in the UK. And within this group, this orchestra, if you will, <laughs> Bruce has become like this incredible theremin player. He plays the theremin. He's famous now for playing the theremin, of all things. So we get into how that even happened, you know? Anyway, there are all kinds of interesting facets to Bruce's story. He's done a lot of different things. And who knew, He, we talk about this, who knew that Video Killed the Radio Star would go on to be the iconic song that it is. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. He's a really good man. And a huge thanks to Matthew Seligman and others who are friends with Bruce that have helped to make this happen. He called me from his home in London. Well, Bruce, uh, I feel like we have to start with the question I'm sure you've been asked a billion times in your life. Let's talk about Video Killed the Radio Star. I want to know specifically what inspired that song. You know, it became almost prophecy. And I don't know if when you wrote it, you were thinking of it like that, or if you were just writing a song and it turned out to come true. Where, what inspired this idea? Well, that's a very interesting question, quite a detailed question, actually. I was working with Trevor Horn when we were both completely unknown and quite penniless. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd just come out of the ashes of a publishing company that had gone bust. And we were both unemployed. We, we basically made a living, scraping a living, playing clubs and, and pubs, that sort of thing. And uh, the odd session. And we were both reading a lot of science fiction at the time. This is in the late 70s in London which is quite a shabby place, actually, mm -hmm. then. And um, we were very fond of an author called J.G. Ballard, mm -hmm. who wrote a, a short story called The Sound Sweep, in which Ballard imagined a world where sound itself had become unfashionable. So the only way to listen to music was not through your ears, but you would feel it subliminally through mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. uh, that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the sort of the, the, the premise of the of the book, I suppose, is about technology affecting people sociologically and how they how they behaved and how 
how uh, we are entertained uh, in different ways through technology and its development. And it was about the demise of an opera singer who'd basically fallen out of favor because nobody wanted to go and hear people singing anymore, mm. basically, because they would feel music silently. And I suppose, in a way, that idea of you know uh, technology usurping it, mm -hmm. uh, itself, if you like, or mm -hmm. means of entertainment was the sort of the, the, the basic idea of the song. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, Video Killed Radio Star isn't, isn't literally true either. It didn't mm -hmm. really come to pass. So, right. so really, it's an analogy. And of course, no, we had absolutely no idea that <laughs> things like YouTube would happen and yeah. the internet, stuff like yeah. that just wasn't on the horizon then. Well, it was on the horizon, but we didn't know about it. Right. So there was no conscious prediction going on whatsoever. We just thought it sounded cool, you know. Yeah. I got this tune and Trevor came up with this words, video killed radio star, and I kind of saw a light bulb go off above his head. <laughs> it's very <laughs> odd. I literally kind of like a flash, you know, uh -huh. like a sort uh -huh. of cosmic flash. Uh -huh. We knew we were onto something, but we had no idea that maybe it would get interpreted further down the line. What I like about it most is the fact that it's it's very recognisable. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a nursery rhyme. And yeah, good I'm point. quite quite sort of pleased. In a, you know, well, I'll be careful not to get too sort of self congratulatory here at all because oh, do it. The, the the main I think what's nice about it is is for Trevor as well said this actually he said he was very pleased that it had become a classic mm -hmm. and I think you know any songwriter. It wants to be basically reach a large audience. That's yeah. what it's all about, really. Yeah. If you're a performer, a writer, whatever, you're doing music, you want to reach, reach a wide audience, mm -hmm. ideally, I think, if you go into commercial music. And I was definitely, I spent 10 years trying to write a pop song, you know, mm -hmm. before that song came along. So I'd had a lot of practice, and so Trevor, you know. Yeah. So when it actually... Uh, manifested in a kind of uh, the, the form of a, of, a, of a hit record, I suppose it was gratifying, although it's much more gratifying later on than it was at the time. <laughs> I for, believe for, it. for me, I, I had mixed feelings about it, but yeah. It's a yeah, standard. It's, it, it's, it's a standard, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that, that, is, that is cool, I think. That's cool yeah. to be able to do that. It is. Um, I'm curious, Did were you ever invited to join the Buggles? Well, you see, this is, oh, you know, people say, oh, I read on Wikipedia, and I say, you don't want to read, you don't want to believe what you read on Wikipedia. <laughs> I sort of, you know, I actually resorted to try and correct things myself, and then the next thing is a robot comes along and puts it all back again. But I, you know, I mean, literally, I, mean, I yeah. wasn't, the thing was, Trevor and Jeff Downs and I, were basically the backing musicians for an artist, a little-known artist probably in, in America, called Tina Charles. And mm. she was a big star over here. And we basically were her backing band for a while. And we went to Malaysia and we toured the Far East with her. So the three of us got to know each other really well. And when we got back, we thought we'd like to do something of our own. Mm -hmm. And we actually formed a group. And then, and then we split up. And then uh, shortly after that, Trevor and I we're still friends and we're still mm -hmm. working together to this day. And we got together one afternoon, both doing our own thing. And we wrote video killed the radio star, uh, kind of in a vacuum really. Mm. And 
what what we wanted to do was make a demo of it in a way that we couldn't afford to. Nowadays, everyone can work on their laptop and create sounds, and it's very easy to make things to sound good these days. Right. But in those days, you had to hire a studio with a tape machine and a and a uh, a, a tape op and a, and an engineer and all of that. So mm-hmm. it was a it was quite a complicated process, and it was expensive. Mm. So we didn't have any money. So Tina, who was quite wealthy said she very kindly volunteered to finance this demo where she trevor jeff and i went in to demo this song and a couple of other songs uh she by the way tina sang the oh oh she came up with that oh yeah and there is a demo somewhere floating around of her singing that so the demo went ahead with us all making it but but i was at the time very keen to kind of do my own thing with a group mm-hmm. called, which became the Camera Club. Yeah. I to be a solo. I was sort of, you know, like, oh, I've got to do this all on my own sort yeah. of thing. Not really, not really appreciating the incredible backup that Jeff and Trevor provided, mm-hmm. incidentally. So we, we weren't together as a group at that point, and yet we'd made this demo. And then they went off and basically got a deal on the back of that demo. And mm-hmm. I was going off elsewhere to CBS Records to get a solo deal. So that's how it mm-hmm. happened. So I was never actually in the Buggles. It was my girlfriend came up with the name of the Buggles. Oh. Um, after we'd made that track, uh, she's now my wife, by the way. But, um, <laughs> nice. you know, so that, it's funny how things happen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But at no point were you, so you were just so focused on starting Camera Club that yeah. it didn't it didn't occur to anyone to have you go join them to be the Buggles. You were just content doing your own thing. They were going to do theirs. Good luck to both of you and everyone's friends, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, um, there was a sort of um, healthy rivalry going on because, mm-hmm. of course, I was doing my own version of the same song. You know, don't forget, at that point, none of us still, none of us had had any success True. whatsoever. And I remember yeah. Trevor coming to our gigs and I'd actually adapted the song a little bit, adding the lines, put the blame on actually VTR. I said VTR, he changed it to VCR. And I remember him coming down to the gig and then after that, him sort of intimating that he was going to use that idea for his Buggles version, which he was in the process of recording. And at the same time, I think there was a bizarre scenario where we were practicing in a rehearsal room and Jeff Downs phoned me up and he could hear Thomas Dolby in the background playing his keyboard parts mm-hmm. which jeff had written which i was incorporating into our version of video killed radio star so mm-hmm. it was like kind of yeah. a, a sort of cold war spying uh, <laughs> scenario where we all to find out what each you know what yeah. this, what each of us was doing so I look back and laugh i suppose yeah. really it was quite quite serious at the time really huh. what is vtr is that a british thing well, v- VTR is videotape recorder. Okay, I thought I figured. Uh, VCR, what does VCR stand for? What video cassette recorder? That's what all of us. That's what we all had. So it sounds like VTR is something similar. It's maybe just the British term for it or something. Yeah, well, it's videotape recorder. Yeah. Okay. The cassette cassette recorder was a development. The first videotape recorders were massive, great machines, huge reel-to-reel machines, the sort Uh. of size of a you know, the size of a gigantic fridge. With, mm-hmm. you know, or And in, they were industrial units. Yeah. Um, it's funny now when you, you know, that's something as well, which you think video killed Radio Star. And 
the, the words video and radio are the same in many, many languages. So that's one reason oh. for its international success and memorability. Oh. But the fact that, you know, you can make a film on your iPhone now is just incredible. Is. When you look back at these early machines and recording devices. So true. Now, I, gotta, I, got, I just got to ask, this is a point blank question. Can you live off Video Kill the Radio Star money? Well, it depends. <laughs> Actually, you know, John has the expression, how long is a piece of string? I mean, <laughs> you, you know, ask my yeah. wife. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's like, it depends on your lifestyle, really, uh -huh. doesn't it? It does, it does, it does. Uh, I would say, though, that over the years, it's gone through peaks and troughs, and it's mm -hmm. been a kind song to me, and not always the most biggest earning song, but it's it's provided over the years in, in a welcome fashion. So, you know, I would say that of it. Okay. Okay. But, but these good. things these things are very cyclical. Sure. You know, there was there was a time in the music business, believe it or not, when the Beatles were very unfashionable, <laughs> and 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 probably didn't sell any records. Yeah. You know, they probably did, but yeah. they they went through a real dip. You yeah. know. Uh, and it was actually uncool to talk about the Beatles, mm -hmm. probably somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s or something. And now, of course, they're revered. And as I said, with the passing of time and retrospect and so on, video has become more iconic than it was than it's probably ever been. Yeah. But it's been through phases where people have forgotten about it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and it certainly it didn't do much business for a long time. I think the expression is the long tail. So when it gets embedded in lots of films and TV programs and becomes part of culture, yeah. that's when it can begin to earn a kind of a steady income, if you Got like. It. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to other things then. I just, I had to hear the story of that song and I'm, I'm glad well, you shared it well, with us. Just my, just my take on it, John. That's, that's all, great. you know. That's great. Okay. Let's talk about the camera club for a minute. That's that band that you formed is almost uh, historic in a way for being a sort of uh, proving ground for people that would go on, including yourself, and do bigger and better things. There's Thomas Dolby in there. There's Matthew Seligman, obviously. Uh, he's replaced by Nigel Ross Scott, who goes on to play in Reflex, which is a band I yeah. really like. So it's almost like this farm team of guys that would go on to do bigger and better things. You, I'm sure you couldn't have known that at the time. What was the, I mean, I think Camera Club only managed one album, English Garden. Yeah. Well, how, how did that was. feel? Feel in what respect? Well, John, I mean, you, yeah, of it. good, good. Thanks for calling me out on that. 
I'm guessing a guy like you, who's been kind of punching away for years, you finally are forming your band, you're seeing your buddies take off a little bit in the buggles, and you're thinking, like we established earlier, this is my thing, the camera club, and it lasts one album. Was it disheartening when it didn't go further? Were there reasons? What were the reasons why it didn't go further? Did everyone just explode onto a bigger scene? What's the story of the camera club? I think it was, uh, it's, it's a huge, uh, well, not a huge, but it's a combination of several factors. First of all, the business is tough. I mean, yeah. all I wanted to do is sort of be like, if you like, a solo artist, actually. And I've thought about this a lot. And and when we got there, when I got there, in a way, the Camera Club, although it was only one album, was a kind of microcosm of, of uh, a microcosm of fame and fortune, mm. you might say. Mm. All the things that can happen to you in, in an artist's career seem to happen during that time. And the only thing that really didn't happen was that, that, that we didn't have multi-platinum sales. Mm -hmm. So we had this microcosm of fame and fortune, mm -hmm. but without actually any fame and fortune as such on a global scale. Yeah. So I saw the whole, the whole industry from the inside firsthand and experienced a lot of the, the hardships that, that artists experience um, when they're in that situation. You know, I also, when I saw the film Spinal Tap, I realized that actually that was very similar to what was happening uh -huh. to to us, you know. Um, we, we ended up making an album, um, going to America and doing a lot of, spending a lot of time in America touring. And that's where the Spinal Tap bit came in. Uh -huh. But unfortunately, that meant that I had no time to write any more songs. Uh -huh. So uh, it's a very different mode, I find, anyway. Writing and, 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 and touring was very difficult. I know a lot of people say they can tour and uh, write on the road, and maybe now that's easier with the mobile technology that we have. But in those days, the, the, the two were rather different uh, experiences and processes, certainly for me. Yeah. So the record company had spent a lot of money on promoting the Camera Club, and uh, we went in actually t eventually to make a second album. But the, the problem was that we didn't really have the material. Mm. And so the reality of it was that the, it, from the industry standpoint was that although we'd made this second album, the label didn't feel there was a hit single on, on the album. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't get released. And mm. that, that's, that's quite painful, actually, yeah. when your material is, is recorded and doesn't get released. And this is something I'm working on, actually. We, I've, I've located all the tapes, for example. Everything is still, um, um, with all credit to Sony, who, who now owns CBS, they actually have all the, everything we recorded still exists. Mm. And it's all in a, it's all in a, wow. a, a, a sort of vacuum-sealed vault, you know? Uh -huh. And everything's been perfectly preserved. I've seen photographs of the tapes and and I see lists of all the songs that were recorded and it's quite uh, extensive. So part of my mission before I die, John, mm. is to actually get this stuff out there and mm -hmm. get it, get the tapes, get it mixed and um, get it released in the fullness of time. But to answer your question more quickly, I think it's that economic thing yeah. of labels... If, if they didn't get a return fairly quickly on an artist, then mm -hmm. they weren't keen to pursue it. Yeah. And so it was a catch-22. They wouldn't release the material, uh, and then they began to become reluctant to record new material. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you go into a thing called suspension, 
where you're you're kind of it's like limbo really yeah yeah and it took a long time to to, to get out of that and when i would while i would while i was in that kind of limbo for a, a good 18 months i started to discover or re i should say reconnect with my love of songwriting mm -hmm. and realized that i could actually write songs for other people and this was something that I'd originally, that's how I actually began, just by writing songs. That was my main, it right. still is actually, my main thing is songwriting. Okay. And it, and, it, and it always was. So the Camera Club was a kind of bizarre solo aberration. Got it. Like, okay, that makes sense. Do, do, do you see what I mean? And it, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, there was, you know, obviously a lot of pain associated with all of that and, and, and distress, you know, being signed to a major label and not being able to, to operate the way you want to. Again, I think it's probably a lot easier for certain artists with the whole independency and artists have so much more control now than they ever did. But, you know, if you're signed to a major label, particularly in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, you had very little artistic control. I could see and that. And it was like being, like being in a factory or something, yeah. like being a, you know. But so, yeah. so it's that. It's a kind of a, a trope, really. Got it. Kind of a, yeah. Okay. I'm curious, um, after the demise, demise might be a strong word, after, the, after Camera Club kind of comes to an end, it seems like it's, a, it's maybe a few years. Uh, now, it sounds like you're comfortable transitioning into songwriting, but I don't know... Um, you know, there's handheld in a black in black and white on the dollar album. That's a great oh, song. Yeah. So obviously, and I'm going to get, I want to dive more into your partnership with Trevor in a minute, but it seems like there's a, a few years there before things really start taking off. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm projecting. And yeah, no, during no, no. that same period of time is when Trevor's career takes off. It's when Thomas's uh, career takes off. It's when the soft boys take off. It's, you know what I mean? It's when the re it's when reflex, when you're watching all of your buddies and your coworkers and your bandmates and your colleagues and your collaborators, and they all start having the success. Do you feel anything? Is there anything bothering? Or do you think they, we've all found our lane and mine songwriting and I'm fine. <laughs> no, I don't, I, I, you know, I think, uh, anybody that, um, y you know, if anybody says, they're in a band, you know. I'm just trying to think of a of a, of a, of a scenario. I mean, it 
it, you have to come to terms with that. You have to deal mm. with it. You have mm. to deal with it. it. It's quite shocking, actually. When you're, when you're with um, somebody, you grow up with people, you're broke together, you know, you're yeah. penniless together, and then suddenly someone you know really, really well has success. In a, in, in a field and maybe they're you know taking a spot that you you were aiming for mm. you have to deal with that you you really mm. do and it's part of the of the of the if you like the rough and tumble of show business you know all you can do is say well i i will apply myself to the best of my ability to what i'm doing and i will basically do good work mm-hmm. that's the, yeah. i think that's the one way to deal with with stuff like that is because you can't get too emotional. In fact, I never, I don't recall ever getting too emotional about Good. it. You might say Good. you might, no, but you might think that you might think, oh God, you know, he's devastated uh-huh. because so and so, his best friend, just you know, got a number one record or whatever. Or look at look at what he's doing. But actually, it's not like that. It's quite exciting Good. because you feel. Well, I'm not that far away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. At least I'm connected. At least, well, one of the things I've had to come to terms with and something I recognize and that, that, that I only realize now looking back is that I have this weird ability to kind of nurture. And I've nurtured musicians throughout my life. And mm. it's something, I wouldn't say I'm a teacher, but somehow I've been able to create an environment for other people almost unwittingly, mm-hmm. uh, to allow them to have success. And that's a mysterious process. It's yeah. a mysterious thing that, that I seem to have done. I'm not taking any credit for it, by the way. Uh-huh. It just seems to have happened. Huh. So, and if that's a, that's a, a kind of an upside to yeah. maybe, you know, it's a counterpoint, if you yes. like. Yes, it's the positive spin. I like that. That's the better way of looking at it. Okay. I never felt despondent by watching my contemporaries have success. Okay, good. Well, I just was, that was such a furtive time, especially in the UK. And you're right in the thick of it. I mean, all of your colleagues, so many people that are in your clique are having success, including you. But it's just, Mm -hmm. I just think, I mean, you and the people you associated with are some of my favorite musicians making some of my favorite music of my entire oh, life. Good. Oh, absolutely. Oh, um, that's nice. Yes. And so, you know what? Let's. I'll just jump right to it because I, Slave to the Rhythm is uh, one of my favorite songs ever. Hey, everybody. Let me break in here for a minute. We haven't done a midsection for a while. One of the reasons for that is that we haven't had a ton of new ratings or reviews on uh, iTunes. And uh, I kept thinking, well, if I put it off, maybe there will be more later. There's only been two. Come on, folks. We need some reviews. Now you got nothing better to do but write reviews. So let me read a couple of these. Uh, First one is from YamaYama94. Awesome music pod. Five stars. If I I don't know if I know who that is. So thank you, YamaYama94. Love the hustle. John goes deep and is through through, I assume that means thorough, in interviews of musicians, writers, and producers, and his enthusiasm and knowledge are second to none. Great way to go below the surface with known and many forgotten stars of rock and pop past. Great job. Thank you very much. And then we have one more, and this is from 35 Street Magic, and I'm pretty sure this person, whoever they are, already left a review. But I, so we're doubling up. Thank you, 35 Street Magic, that you did this twice. 
The Peter Wolf Podcast is pure magic. Thank you. Thank you. The Hustle Podcast team rules. Thank you very much. We got really lucky with Peter Wolf. That episode was a lot of fun. And uh, I appreciate you mentioning the team because, of course, none of this happens without Yan. He's the linchpin that makes everything happen. So uh, thank you for recognizing that, 35 Street Magic. Um, I don't know what else to say, really, in this time. It's an odd... It's an odd, crazy time these days, isn't it, with the quarantining and stuff. Yan and I are recording a, a uh, the, the latest recap this weekend, and uh, we're going to touch on kind of what we've been doing during this time. Obviously, it's a fertile time to get lots of interviews. People have plenty of free time on their hands, and I don't say that insensitively in case anyone out there is suffering from this or knows people who are suffering. My brother-in-law has it. And my, one of our, my wife's good friends, she's a friend of mine too, she has it, and a few other people, it's, it's so weird. I mean, the world is upside down, I don't know how else to describe it. So anyway, um, we'll get into more detail about all of that when we do our, um, our recap later this week. So I hope everyone is staying safe, and I'm curious what kind of things you guys are watching or reading or binging or whatever to make the time go by a little quicker and a little easier. Uh, anyway, we love you all, and it feels like an odd time to mention the merch on Amazon, so I will passive-aggressively mention it. Again, if you wanted to go on Amazon and you wanted to buy a t-shirt or something, I don't know that anyone should necessarily be spending their money on merch right now. You should probably be hanging on to it, given what's happening with unemployment. But if you wanted to support us somehow, there you go. I am thinking very strongly of starting the Patreon page. Again, not to gouge money out of everyone. That's been my reason for not doing it. But I have some things that I want to give away. Some of our former guests have mailed us some some really wonderful swag, and I'd like to give it away but um, I thought about making it available to Patreon people. So if you're listening to this, tell me what you think. I get a lot of you who say, just start the Patreon and I'll, I'll contribute. And that means the world to me. Um, I always feel like I need to have more stuff to give you in return other than the podcast. And that's one of the hesitations for me doing it. That and asking for money, which feels really weird. But uh, if anyone wants to make a contribution, I should probably get this Patreon thing set up. And that way those people can be first in line to win any swag that we have. And as I mentioned, I have a couple of vinyl records that uh, I really want to give away. So anyway, let's get back to Bruce. I hope you guys are enjoying this. And seriously, Slave to the Rhythm, one of the greatest songs of all time. A lot of that has to do with the writing. A lot of that has to do with Trevor's production. Trevor, as I've stated on this show many, many times, is my favorite producer of all time. That sweet spot that he was in in the 80s with people like Grace and Frankie and Yes and Malcolm McLaren and all that stuff is the most is the most beautiful ear candy lush production I can think of, you know? So my understanding is that Slave to the Rhythm was originally written with intended for Frankie Goes to Hollywood and it didn't happen. So tell us the story yeah. about that. Well, you're very knowledgeable, John. I must congratulate you oh. on your... Uh, yeah, <laughs> Thank no, that's you. good. Well, it, as you quite rightly observed, it was written for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I mean, I remember Trevor saying, look, uh, we need a single for Frankie. What can you... You know, have you got mm -hmm. something? Have you got an idea? And I was working with a guy called Simon Darlow at the time who 
he, he uh, we, you mentioned Dollar. We did Handheld in Black and White, and we did a song called Mirror Mirror for Dollar. came in and did all the keyboards on Mirror Mirror. Mm. And this is pre-MIDI. If you listen back to those tracks, they sound like they're MIDI, like kind of computerized. Mm. Um, but that was the way Trevor was kind of still in his man-machine mode at that point. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> uh-huh. and um, Simon went on to do another song called Give Me Back My Heart. I ended up working with Simon. And I said, Simon, look, Trevor wants a song for Frankie. I've got this title. It's called Slave to the Rhythm of the Chain Gang. Mm. And uh, he said, why don't you change that to just Slave to the Rhythm? So we we agreed and we made a demo, the two of us, and recorded a demo of that song, Slave to the Rhythm, which was quite uh, Teutonic, uh, mm. you might say. It had a very white groove, mm. um, almost like a kind of Gary Glitter. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with Gary Glitter. Of course, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't very groovy, as, as, as you might say. Uh-huh. Anyway, but the point is it sort of fitted Frankie, and I, they did actually record, they recorded a version of the song. But I think Holly, um, Holly Johnson, who, let's face it, had just had two number ones, which he'd written himself. Yeah. Um, I think he resented the fact that uh, he should record this song by two probably he considered us a sort of hack songwriters hmm. you know so why why would why would i do that why would he do that that's and, let me interrupt for one second if you don't mind because that's very strange because welcome to the pleasure dome has a number of frankly odd covers on it like born to run and stuff like that so what was his aversion was was the intention that it was going to be a single and he just didn't want to record someone else's single or was it just going to be an album track and we'll see what happens? I find that I'm really confused by that. Well, I don't know for sure. I suspect. Okay. I mean, if he, cho- if he did Born to Run, that's because he wanted to. You know? ah. Or I think they did Ferry Across the Mersey. Yes, that guess. too. There's a few of them. You know, there. that's because they, want, they wanted to do that. This was a sort of um, a record uh, company coming to them so saying, I got it. hey, you know, Trevor published Simon at the time, so it meant that Trevor would get publishing on on the, the track. You know, I mean, uh, don't, by the way, don't get me wrong. I don't think Trevor would ever choose a song just because he had publishing on mm, it, okay. but it it didn't do any harm. Yeah. So one of his writers has been, if you like, commissioned to write for you know for one of the acts of the label that that, that you know ZTT Perfect Songs. Mm-hmm. 
so there's a political intrigue going on from Holly's point of view. He thinks, well, why should I? I'm, I'm, I, and I don't know this for sure. So I think that there was a rumor that, that Holly said, well, maybe I'll do it providing I can have some of the publishing of the mm, song. Mm. Now, I kind of got a half memory of that. And Holly, if you're listening, apologies if that's not the case. And Simon and I were very reluctant to give away any publishing to someone who hasn't yeah. actually written the song. This goes on in the business. It's been going on for years. I mean, it's one of those things where very powerful artists have been able to get songwriting credits, even yeah. though they've done nothing uh, with the songwriters. And it's still sometimes used as a bargaining chip. Mm -hmm. So that was possibly one of the reasons. And the other reason is that Holly didn't choose to have this song written for him. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, just thought, no, I don't really want to do it. Or they recorded it or they didn't think it was good enough, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there could be loads of reasons there, which I still haven't to this day got to the bottom of. Okay. But the upshot, the upshot of it was that Chris Blackwell heard that song and liked that title. Okay. And it so, became Grace's album, which is, uh, and, and you're heavily involved in the Slave to the Rhythm album. And I gotta, I gotta admit, I, I'm a sucker for everything that Trevor does. And uh, that album is so odd. I, I, and I think if I remember correctly, I've read some of the, a little bit of the behind the scenes things because it, it doesn't even play it plays almost more like performance art it's like the history yeah. of grace jones put the music that sh and she's barely even on it there's probably more ian mcshane doing narration than there is grace jones singing on that album it's almost like a, it's like a trevor rabin performance art piece that includes grace jones ian mcshane and a bunch of other people you know what i mean <laughs> Yeah. yeah, <laughs> do, yeah. <laughs> you sound so resigned. That's classic. What's the story of that album? It's so weird. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'll try and be brief, John. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, um, as we already have heard that the song was written for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and then they didn't want to release it for whatever reason. Coincidentally, Chris Blackwell, who who had a vested interest in ZTT and Island Studios, which was becoming Psalm Studios, said to Trevor, "Look, I've got I can uh, Grace is leaving Island, and I can rec I'm allowed to record one one with her mm. uh, before she leaves as a final farewell uh, record." And um, he said, "Could you do Slave to the Rhythm with Grace?" And Trev said, "Yeah." And I and I, when he told me that, I said, "Yeah, Trev, are you mm -hmm. kidding? Let's do it." So we actually met with Grace, and very quickly, a few days, literally a few days later, we were in the studio and recorded what we call the Gary Glitter version of that song, and it was good. You know, it was good. In fact, a version of it is actually manifests on the eventual album. Mm -hmm. But Jean-Paul Goud, who was Grace's um, Grace was his muse, I guess. He's the one that gave her the hairstyle and the kind of weird mm -hmm. look. Mm -hmm. And all the arty photographs were Jean-Paul Goud. Um, he, he's a, a film director and an artist. And he came in on some of the sessions and observed that the groove wasn't really very... Uh, it was a bit white. He said, he said the trouble is... Uh, you can sell a black groove um, to a white man, but you can't sell a white groove to a black man. Ooh. And yeah, and, yeah. It's, and if you think about it, it's very true. And yep. the way music is now, if you look at the top ten and Billboard, everything's got a groove. Everything's got a black groove yep. to it. You know, in those days, it didn't. It wasn't like yep. that. 
And so the quest was then on to see how can we make Slave to the Rhythm like a more kind of, uh, I suppose you might say, R&B or urban these days. Right. So Chris Blackwell, who's a visionary, suggested we go to New York. This seems like a very long-winded way of doing things because now you just buy a sample CD and get the groove. But in those days, you had to go to New York to see Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers playing live, Mm -hmm. playing their go-go beat. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not kidding. We went, and Chuck Brown would come on stage and play the same groove for two hours, which was a go-go, like a hip-hop kind of groove. And this beat would just take you over. I'm not kidding. It was Mm -hmm. like hypnosis. And we were in New York listening to this, and um, Trevor was able to get Chuck Brown's rhythm section into the studio and record them. Yeah. And after a few wow, that's Chuck attempts, Brown's rhythm section. No yeah. way. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's the no Chuck way. Brown. It's the Soul Searchers. Yeah. But, but the, the 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 irony of it was though, John, was that we tried to get them to play the Gary Glitter version. <laughs> And it was a disaster. Really? As you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, And what happened was, the second day of recording, the guys came into the studio and they were just jamming. They were just like warming up. And Steve Lipson was was the engineer on that session. And Trev obviously producing. Trev said, Steve, record them. Listen, listen to that. Mm -hmm. They're just jamming. They're warming up. Mm -hmm. Record them. So Steve put the machines into recording. We were using Sony digital tape machines at the time. And he got this like a kind of 10 minutes of just groove, like the ultimate sample CD, you know? And that's what basically, that's what we ended up using. And we we rewrote all the chords and the music in the hotel room from a cassette of this groove that Trevor had brought Mm. in and was playing to us. And we we hired a a TR-808 machine to try and copy the groove. Mm-hmm. And I had a JX8P Roland keyboard in the hotel room, and we rewrote the whole song mm. one like that evening, yeah. and and then went round to Chris Blackwell's hotel room with the equipment, plugged it all into these little amps, the TR808 and the JX8P, played it to him and sang it to him live, and said, "What do you think?" And he said, "It's perfect." Mm, <laughs> nice, good. The, 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 so the next the next trick was to get Grace in the studio. That took five <laughs> five days. We waited five I've days. I've heard I've heard about this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not re- reliable is not necessarily Grace's you know uh, theme word. Yes, I've heard this. Um, let well, me ask you about. Well, continue if you if you want. I have more questions about Grace. No, I'm sorry. I was reminded of the, the quote from The Hobbit or, or uh, Lord of the Rings where the wizard turns up and, you know, he, when he's like six days late or something and Bilbo Baggins says, you're late, he says, a wizard is never late. He always turns up just on time. <laughs> and it, Grace was a bit like that. Yeah, I could so. see that. I, could I see digress. That. I'm digressing. No, that's great. You've kind of alluded to this. I'm really curious what it's like working with Grace Jones because... My feeling about Grace is that Grace, the magic of Grace Jones is that she is an ideal canvas for artists to put their art on top of, whether it's fashion or music or graphic art. She's almost like a living statue or mannequin that you can pose and you can you can uh, costume, you can decorate, you can 
influence however you want with your artistic vision and she'll be the instrument that puts it out there and she's so exotic and unique and flashy and sexy and interesting that it just makes your art seem that much better or i don't know more more interesting or whatever does any of that make sense well it does john i mean it completely locks into what we were talking about earlier about you know the thing about being an artist or a writer or both nowadays it's much easier to do both but when we were on the slaves of the rhythm uh, sessions grace and i spontaneously began writing together Mm -hmm. we just we just the user word hit it off i mean we just clicked and and that nothing could have nothing could have prepared me for that connection mm-hmm. and it turned out you know i'm i'm a i'm a i'm a i write melodies and tunes and grooves and stuff and i can write a few words and in my life i've met a few gifted lyricists trevor's one of them mm-hmm. uh, and grace is another grace mm-hmm. jones is a, is a truly gifted artist people don't necessarily recognize that but she's she's terrific i mean as a lyricist she's second to none and i i found that enormously exciting so we're, there we were in new york and we wrote this song we'd never written together before it was just in some downtime while um, trevor was editing you know slave to the rhythm we wrote a song called party girl When you say what you've just said about her being a kind of uh, like a canvas or a mannequin, yeah, canvas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's terrific because I then discovered that I could put in. I I didn't have to bother about. (laughs) It sounded like I was being lazy, but I suddenly didn't have to worry about myself as an artist because Mm. she was being the voice. She was being the artist for the material that I was generating. Um, and then co- the, initially with Slade, and then collaborating with her. And it was great because yes. I could speak through her, literally. Wow. You, you know, and it, yeah. that, was so, that was so rewarding. And we ended up working on almost three albums, four mm-hmm. if you count the dub version of Hurricane. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, okay, the second album took 20 years, <laughs> and I only, only got a few tracks on it. But the, certainly the, that whole experience of working her was was something I could never have predicted. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you write William's Blood? 
Actually, no, I didn't. Oh, that's my favorite song on that album. I was <laughs> hoping that, that that was yours. That's okay. Uh, to disappoint you, Jim. No, that's okay. That's okay. I was just curious. <laughs> I have it, I, but I have a soft copy, you know, on the a digital copy, so I didn't know who wrote what. And I saw yeah. her perform that song on Jules Holland, you, you oh, know, yeah. whatever that was, 10 years ago or something. And it blew my mind. And then when I was getting ready to talk to you, I'm realizing <laughs> you're involved. And I thought maybe that was you. But anyway, well, what, no, whatever you did, I'm sure way. it was great. <laughs> she also performed I Love You to Life as well, with them, which is which is one of True. the ones I wrote. Okay. Who can define infinity? Definition of the end. Don't ask me, will I die for you? A question always looks for an answer. Question. I love you to lie. I, I love you to lie. Oh, I love you to lie. Oh, I love you to lie. I'm not to death. Your creator is who you're jealous of. You're still existing on another plane. If you should venture on a question not asked, strange, we're all so different somehow. Different. Falling like a star that leaves a trail that vanishes behind you. Yeah, but like you said, she she's just this incredible, like living performance yep, artist. Yeah, yep, that's yep, it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so my let's talk for a second more about the Inside Story album that you worked on with her because my third favorite producer of all time is Nile Rodgers, and he's involved there. So do you now? I think I read somewhere I don't remember that those two didn't necessarily get along, and uh, I'm curious what your take on Nile and that album is. Oh, this is tricky. Um, and when you said earlier to me, John, if there's something I don't want to talk about, I'll oh, talk about it. But... No, 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 no. But it's not that I don't want to talk about it. I just have to be very diplomatic, that's all. And just say that that time was, hmm, somebody warned me about working with Niall and Grace as a combination early on before the project. And it wasn't until I got into it that I realized that it was potentially a dangerous for me somehow mm -hmm. spiritually i suppose mm -hmm. and and physically and also during that time it was a very hedonistic time mm -hmm. uh, in new york it, it, it's almost like saying really i'm lucky to be alive and i'm wow. lucky that i can come back from that experience and 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 laugh if you like yeah um but you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into any, any okay. detail here, okay. but it was a very intense, very, uh, as I use the word, hedonistic time mm -hmm. for everybody. But having said that, you see, the work got done and yeah. Niall was a genius, yep. an absolute genius. And he just amazed me, actually, mm -hmm. with, his, with his, his, his process and how, how he operated. Um, and 
you know, everybody knows him for his guitar playing, for example. There was a song we wrote, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for you. So and So good. Uh, It needed a bass part, and he came in, and he would basically typically turn up at the studio at about two in the morning, by the way. That's when, you know, that's when we'd start. And he was a very flashy dresser, he still is. He, he, he would dress in these amazing sort of zoot suits and, and hats, kind of like some sort of 1940s exaggerated gang, gangster. So very stylish, very stylish. And uh, he said, oh, we need a bass part on this, this track. Um, get me a bass so somebody went and got him a bass and he did like a couple of takes probably like two takes on this and i was watching him play and i thought this is terrible he's completely out of time Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. he's like this is i I don't get it and then he finished the take and then they put they played the playback and when they played it back it was like oh my god he's so in the pocket he's not out of time he's not out of time Mm -hmm. he's like just you know, milliseconds in, you know, behind or whatever, yeah. just the k- killing that groove. Yeah. And that was just one example of of his, his, his incredible ability. Okay. And he, you know, and he was very good with, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for you. He co-wrote a lot of, uh, he, he st- would stop Grace while she was singing and say, no, don't sing that with the lines that she'd written. He would say, Sing, sing these words, which mm-hmm. he was making up as mm-hmm. we went along. Wow. And, and, and substantially improved the song. And he was great because he, you know, I, I met him recently. He's never, he never ever asked for a credit on that song or anything. Oh. Really. He should have. Really, yeah. He should have. Yeah. I so love him. Amazing operator. Yeah. yeah. I was curious. <laughs> I have to ask when you were working so close, closely with Grace, was Dolph Lundgren around the, at these <laughs> during this time? Yeah, he was. He, yeah, he, <laughs> yes. he didn't know. Dolph used to come down and and hang at uh-huh. the studio. Uh-huh. Uh, so at the studio, I had this old warehouse in uh, in South London, which was an old power station, uh, which was very sort of dilapidated. And Grace loved it because it was so primitive. You know, mm-hmm. she'd love it. And uh, the only difficulty was that uh, not difficulty, but the, one of the things that the uh, the, the lavatories were very primitive downstairs. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have to go like walk into this very spooky place to 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 use the facilities. Uh-huh. And uh, one night she suggested, "Look, have I really got to go all that way?" She said, "Can't we just get a potty?" You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> but I that's that's English humor, <laughs> but. Dolph, Dolph would come and I think really 
the difficulty for for the Grace's admirers was they'd come to the studio and they they'd be, get bored very quickly mm. because it was all about her obviously yeah. and I would sort of be kind of keeping it going you know like yeah. getting her to do stuff and and really it's not a spectator thing you know if you're in the recording studio and people are working it's really boring for yeah. people who aren't working yeah. because there's nothing for them to do and and they see them people sing the same song over and over again mm-hmm. or see this that and it's not very entertaining actually yeah. so my memories of Dolph of him sort of falling asleep on the sofa really <laughs> sorry that's not very glamorous oh that's like. great though no, no 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 that's great okay that's, that's just the kind of color I was wanting okay let's talk for uh, there's still so much to do but before we move off of this I want to just hear about Trevor a little bit I've had several people on here who have worked closely with Trevor and because I'm just yeah. fascinated by him. And most of them say really good things. I did have Brian Nash from Frankie Goes to Hollywood on here and he wrote a book about his he's not he you know, he's not happy with any of that situation very much for the most part. And I understand because he doesn't make any money off of the music that he was involved in because it took so long to make. But I am, uh, I spoke with Julian Mendelssohn recently, the producer. Yes, I and, saw, yes. Okay. And he and I were talking about Trevor. And one thing that he kept mentioning is that Trevor really gets off on problems. If something starts <laughs> going wrong or, you know, something got deleted or so a machine breaks down, this gets Trevor going. And he then his mind gets super creative and he starts thinking of ways he can kind of stitch things together. Would you say that's accurate? I think he's very good at problem solving in that sense. Mm. Um, you know, gear nowadays equipment um, is very reliable. And in, in the days of and Julian and the early days of the art of noise, the early days of Frankie and so forth, uh, equipment was notoriously unreliable. And so there'd be a lot of downtime if something broke down, mm-hmm. getting machines to sync up. This is all pre-digital, by the way. This is when you are using analog or digital tape machines mm-hmm. and trying to get uh, sequences and so forth to run in time um, together, hooking stuff up, as we used to call it. So, so yeah, I, I had less experience of that with Trevor, um, okay. uh, the, the, the sort of equipment failure, because uh, I was spared a lot of that, actually, because mm-hmm. I'd go in and do sessions and things generally would work. When you say he gets off on, on things breaking down, I don't know so much that. I think what he relishes is if he sees something that he doesn't think is right, he will go to extraordinary lengths to find something that is right. Mm. So this entails often going into unnecessary detail mm-hmm. or perhaps we might regard it as overthinking, mm. i.e., hang on, this sounds great, Trev, what's the problem? You know, yeah. uh, yes, but, you know, I still think that this could be this bar here or that note there or mm-hmm. this sound here, whereas the engineers would think this is perfectly okay. You, John, I mm-hmm. would, we think this is fine. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. But he's going to, he's, if there's a flaw or a weakness in the track, he's going to find it. Yeah. You know, and that weakness might stem from a player. You know, the bass player's not good enough in the band that he's just been hired to produce. Yeah. Right. We get somebody else, you know, or this, uh, this song's in the wrong key. Right. We're going to re-record it in a different key. Yeah. Uh, he, he won't stop. Uh, mm-hmm. on, on, and, and, and he's still really like that, you know. That's why he's he's so successful and why 
he's unique, really, probably among um, yeah. producers. He he would go that extra mile where other people would just would just wouldn't wouldn't mm-hmm. dare. Mm-hmm. You know, he went where people wouldn't dare. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and he yeah. still does. By yeah, way. <laughs> yeah. Are you? Um, I think you. Are you? I don't know uh, enough about. I know he's touring now. I, I, you know, it's interesting. I think about people like him. I love talking with producers. I have a lot of producers on here, and yeah. they're really the guys, the people behind so much of the music that I love. But because they're not in a band, they don't get to go out and tour endlessly, like Kiss or the Rolling Stones do, or whatever. You know. But a lot of them, like Tony Visconti or Trevor or many others, have found a little niche for themselves where they can go out and tour and, you know, play whatever. Play, I think Trevor even played with mm. Dire Straits for a while or something like that. Do you ever go out on tour with him or play shows with him or anything like that? Well, last year, for example, he, he, he's got a group. Uh, it started out as the producers with him and Steve Lipson and Lowell, Lowell Krenn from 10CC. Uh, and it's now morphed into the Trevor Horn band. And he goes out and plays, I guess, every song he plays is a hit song, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true, and he yeah. did, in fact, ask me to go and sing Slave to the Rhythm last year at Cornbury Festival, which I did. It was a lot of fun. So um, I, over the years, I have guested with the producers uh, when they were the producers and um, I even actually sang at Trevor's daughter's wedding. Oh, no way. Was quite, it was like something out of The Godfather. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it was wow. amazing. So I do stay in touch on that. I do keep that connection, and he mm-hmm. and I do the odd thing together live. Um, and I also did a lot of live work myself last year with the Radio Science Orchestra. Uh, yep. So I'm, I'm, I'm also doing more live than I've ever done in many years. And I yeah. think what Trevor finds good about it what we both enjoy is the fact that that's how we began you know before we moved to london that's how we did it we mm-hmm. played live for a living and so if you if you give that up you miss it yeah there's nothing like nothing like it it puts you in the moment when you think that you can spend days weeks years in the studio working on the same track or the same album mm-hmm. there's no end there's no sort of it's very hard to see the end whereas if you do a gig you know you play a gig and then an hour later, it's done. Yeah, it's all there. Sure. It's sure. all done. Yeah, and you're absolutely living in the moment. Very so good point. I think, yeah, I think that's what's the appeal for him. That's okay. for sure. So let's talk. That was going to be my next line of questioning. Let's talk about the Radio Science Orchestra. I think it might be interesting for people to know that I I think at this stage your primary job is to play the theremin of all things. <laughs> Why? Well, Why the theremin? And tell us about the history of the Radio Science Orchestra. Well, thanks for asking. I mean, my primary job is, isn't actually currently to play the theremin, oh, okay. but okay. I, I would say that I'm a, I, I'm an, uh, a great promoter of the theremin, you know, and I did in the early 90s. I became quite disillusioned um, with with the music scene and discovered the theremin and and when I say disillusioned, I was, wasn't was hearing music to my taste, contemporary mm-hmm. music to mm-hmm. my taste. And I discovered, I went back and discovered Exotica, which I think kicked off around 1947 mm-hmm. um, with a guy called Les Baxter and um, a song, a, a record called Music Out of the Moon, which was the first theremin album with um, Samuel Hoffman playing. And Les Baxter, who was a pretty famous arranger in those days, 
did this concept album about the moon mm. and one and there was a documentary in 1993 about Leon Theremin who invented the instrument uh, by a guy called Steve Martin a New York film director mm-hmm. and it just blew my mind when I discovered this instrument. Then I tried to track one down, and it was virtually impossible to find one in England in the early 90s, to find one anywhere in the early 90s. But yeah. I was able to do so and put this, like, I guess we were like a kind of weird, we, we were like something out of, um, we like to think, out of Twin Peaks, a strange mm-hmm. cabaret act <laughs> playing in a, little nightclub in Soho, uh, the 60s style nightclub uh, called Madden Jojo's. And that's how it all began there. And um, the the appeal of the theremin is, of course, is you you don't touch it Uh and you you interact with an electrostatic field Mm -hmm. of energy. So it's it's very mysterious and quite spooky. And, you know, you wonder why does the theremin sound like a spooky ghost? And when you start playing it, 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 it feels so weird. You know? <laughs> when you're doing that, so can you feel the electricity in your hands? Do you feel... I do believe, without being fanciful, occasionally you, you do... You do. You can feel this sort of tingling. Huh. And when I first started playing, I, was, I had no skill. I just could make sort of woo-woo sounds, and right. that was enough. Right. was enough. Right. People thought I was miming. People think you're miming. Yeah. Um, I think it's a magic trick, you know. Uh-huh. Then uh, very quickly, we we met some people who were developing instruments, and I, I met had the good fortune to meet Bob Moog, who had mm. begun his career building little theremins mm-hmm. and was getting back into it. So suddenly there were some professional instruments appearing, and I suppose I've been playing for about 25 years, and then quite quite recently, I met a guy who is so much better at playing than, than I am that he takes all the difficult lead mm. theremin roles now. Okay. He's a young guy called Charlie Draper, and he embodies the theremin. You know, he's okay. great. Wow. I'm still playing. I'm still playing. Okay. But, but the really... The really hairy stuff he has to do because I can't do it. <laughs> so is that so your? Can, oh, go you ahead. Know, I can, but it's not as good. It wouldn't sound as good as, as if he was doing. Got it. it you know? Got it. Okay. <laughs> but is the radio science orchestra? Is that your primary? When you wake up in the morning, is your job that day or your primary focus of that day? Does it relate back to the radio science orchestra, or is it something completely different? Are you a free agent? Well. No, no, it does depend because it's it's an ongoing project, John, and we've been working on it for many years now. And last year we ramped the whole thing up. We said, um, right, first thing is we're uh, we're not going to do any gigs unless anybody pays us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we set down some because you'll be surprised how many musicians go out and play and don't get paid, or even have to actually pay to play, which yeah. is scandalous. Yeah. But you know, we're all passionate about what we do, so we'll do it anyway. But last year we set out, set out some new rules and it worked out very, very well. So last year was very radio science orchestra centric and we ended up doing a mini tour to celebrate the Apollo 50 mm. uh, moon landing. And we actually performed extracts from Music Out of the Moon by Les Baxter for the first time, I think, that ever. I don't think they've ever been played live since 1947. We played a 
uh, a, a festival called Blue Dot Festival where we supported craft work. We went and did the TED Summit in Edinburgh. Yeah. And we ended up going to Mexico doing um, their kind of CDI, which is City of Ideas in Puebla. So last year was action-packed for the RSO. Good. We've recorded a lot of material, and this year we're now going to concentrate on releasing all of that material. Okay, good. So, yeah. Excellent. So it'll all come out eventually. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, well, let's, uh, one last question. I want to, I, you know, we try to cover sensitively on here the business side of things, and we talked a little bit about, you know, the the ebbs and flows of Video Killed the Radio Star. I am curious at this stage, what thing is, is that the most, uh, I don't know, financially successful thing that you've been a part of? And the reason I ask that is because I know you have a song on the Cher album, Believe, which let me preface, I'm not really that into Cher. I've never owned that album, but I know that it was mm -hmm. a huge deal. And Love is the Groove, you co-wrote that and it's on that album. Everyone will seek his own home is where the heart Was yeah. that just a massive yeah. period of mailbox money in your life? I know that, uh, what's her name? Oh, uh, Nicki Minaj sampled uh, one of your songs, sampled video, Kill the Radio Star, and that may have been a big deal. What are, what are these things like? Are they big kind of windfalls or are they one-offs? How does that work? Well, we talked about long tail earlier. I mean, Cher was, you know, one of the things that's, that has affected songwriters dramatically with streaming is the fact that a songwriter can no longer get say one track on a million selling album mm -hmm. and sort of uh, ride on the back of it and you know if i'm really really honest that's kind of what happened with mm -hmm. love is the groove um betsy cook who had written that song with me had recorded it as an artist and rob dickens the head of the label always loved the song it wasn't a hit mm -hmm. but it, he was sort of very responsible for then producing the share album and he he was instrumental in getting betsy and, uh, and my song onto that album and there were only tr 10 tracks on it mm -hmm. and in those days in england uh, a cd was selling for as much as 17 pounds that's like uh, 20 25 dollars you know and so if you sell 20 million copies, which I've, I've read she did, then you can start to do the arithmetic. Mm -hmm. So Cher's Love is the Groove, even though it wasn't a hit, 
did generate enormous business mm-hmm. for, for the writers and for the label and for share. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So you're, it's almost like invisible, but mm. now the whole industry was based on that premise that songwriters like me who would write cover songs could get a song on a Tina Turner album or something, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the album does really well, but your track is actually quite, can go by, by unnoticed. Yeah. But that was the way, that was the business model. It, you would make an album of, 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 of hopefully singles and the one that got to the top would sell the album yeah. and the audience would have to buy the album to get, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now that, in a way that was very unfair on the general public. And in a way it's kind of, unfair all round Mm -hmm. but i have to say i did benefit from that and um now with streaming it's far more equitable i think Uh, the track is the track if the track's not happening then the track's not happening you know you know don't piggyback on the sales of a Mm -hmm. piece of plastic Mm -hmm. but you know we've had other songs like john farnham you may have not have heard of he's a big artist you're the voice yeah i love john yeah there you go well he he um he did a song called Two Strong Hearts, which is actually one of my top five uh, earners, if you, really? if you like. Also is and also check it out was was great. Again, that's again you think well you, you wake up in the morning and someone says I've I've sampled your song um, and all you've got to do is actually write one email <laughs> to say yes you can use it. <laughs> it's, you know, will I am? I'm not going to say no. Um, you know, and that's kind of unfair as well. And you, yeah. sometimes you actually feel guilt about that. Yeah. You know, you're going to feel a bit of guilt no. because you haven't actually done anything. But it's except- payment for all those years that you were, you know, working so hard for something like that to happen. I mean, if you look at it collectively, <laughs> you got what you deserved in the end. You know, that's oh, how I see it. Someone like you. You are making me feel so good. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> you know, it's karma. Um, okay. Let me close with two two things. Number one, I've asked you tons of questions about the music and the people that matter to me. But I worry sometimes that people have these fantastic stories that they aren't telling because I didn't ask the right question that provokes it. And so if if you have a favorite story and if it involves Cher or somebody else that I may or may not even care about, please feel free to share it because I bet we'd love it. And then secondly, please let us know what are you, do you have anything else to promote? Is there anything that you're kind of working on that you want people to, you want to draw their attention to? Tell us what that is. 
Well, I could send you some music, uh, some current tracks, if if you like, John. I'd love I it. Notice because I did have a little, you know, peek at your uh, at, at the hustle. Uh-huh. Um, very good, it is too. Oh, and, thank uh, you. So, so um, I could subsequently, once we finish speaking, I would like to update you with a couple of tracks. Please. And one of them would be a radio science orchestra track. working on a film about um, Lawrence of Arabia, which mm-hmm. is an independent film. I was asked to do the title track for it, <clears throat> and I've just recorded it nice. with a guy called Chris Thompson, who yeah. sang Blind, Blinded by the Light. The, I, uh, I interviewed Chris about a month ago. Wow, how about that? <laughs> That's wild. I love Chris. That is. <laughs> yeah, he's great. Yeah. Um, and he, he sang, well, and not only did he write John Farnham's the, the, voice, yeah, the voice, I believe. Yep. Uh, he sang the demo for Two Strong Hearts. So there you go. That's, <laughs> that, I can't believe you interviewed him. I did. Just yeah, <laughs> if that two or three, you know, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Well, well, I'll send you. Uh, this isn't. Nobody's heard this. We literally um, mastered it at the weekend. So we literally. It's hot off the press. Nice. I'll send you. It's called After Arabia, and it's for the uh, film about Lawrence of Excellent. Arabia. On this sea of sand We lived as dreamless buzz Into his quiet nest We turned to dust We dream of Arabian nights Peace and tranquil starry light My will is rid upon the stars Until this will takes you apart So, so those, okay. those are quite quite current projects. Fantastic, fantastic. That's wild. So, what uh, what's your favorite story, Bruce? When you look back over this crazy career of yours, uh, was it meeting a hero? Was it playing something live? Was it hearing it on the radio? Was it working with somebody in particular? What was the thing that you're just like that was the best? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I 
I am uh, I'm kind of lost for words, really. Really? Okay. Just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. If there's not one thing, okay. Well, that's great. I just wondered if there was something that was top of mind and I wasn't asking the right question to get us there. I will ask you one other thing. I discovered in getting ready to talk to you a song that I had never heard before and I fell in love with, and that's Doc Dancing with Dr. Bop by The Studs. <laughs> the video for that song is hilarious. have a little story about that one well i mean that's that's very odd that you, i mean again i'm uh, applauding your uh, uh, your detective work here John. i mean that's, <laughs> right. nobody knows about this at all oh it's great um, but in the back in the day uh, when trevor and i were struggling uh, as songwriter producer uh, producers um that was the song that i'd written with a publishing company who one day, uh, I'd, I'd written a song with a girl, and we'd done a demo. And he said, "Oh, um, you've got a num you've got a number one in Australia, you know." <laughs> and I said, "What? You know, surely not." And in those days, there was no internet, uh, uh -huh. no way of finding out anything yeah. at all. And I, I just kind of assumed that it wasn't true. Uh -huh. um, but, 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 but in later life, I suddenly I, I, I started to realise that this actually was true, and that we had, in fact, uh, achieved a number one in Australia mm. in the late mm. 70s. I remember when tr the guy told me, tr Trevor looked at me and said, so, Bruce, you've, you've had a number one record. How does it feel? <laughs> you know, I, just thought, I don't know. Uh, have we really had a number one right. record? Right. There was no evidence. And, of course, we never, and to this day, haven't seen a single penny. What? Really? No, not, not a single penny. But those are the dark days of publishing, John. Dark <laughs> days of Tin Pan Alley publishing. Oh, man. <laughs> what about Baby Blue that Dusty Springfield had a big hit with?
Was that better? Yeah, you? this. Well, this is another first because that was written with um, Jeff and Trevor, and uh-huh. that was our first uh, hit hit record. Actually, again, though, with one of those things, it's like we used to do these demos, and we would get the final song back, and really, it wasn't. You know, the, it was sometimes a disappointment because our demos were so much better. We uh-huh. used to think that everybody knew better than us. Mm-hmm. So we always thought, oh, well, they'll do a great version. But often it was, in fact, our demos were had the kind of essence of what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why artists nowadays generally don't do demos and just go in and make the record because yeah. they probably know best and they know how they want it to sound. Yeah, maybe. So, um, okay. you know, things have changed changed a lot over the years but i guess the the thing that i'm happiest about is that i'm still doing what i was doing you know what i mean i i I, I can still do that and so it's a real privilege to be able to to do music for a living basically it is and that's why i started this project about five years ago was because i just was fascinated how people make it work over the decades, especially mm-hmm. when the business changes or the limelight moves on or there's bad business deals or whatever it might be. How does someone like Bruce Woolley stay relevant for over 40 years? And that's why I wanted to hear these. And we know we know Queen's story. We know Fleetwood Mac's story. We don't know Bruce Woolley's story. And so that's why mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you and why I started this avenue to even get these stories out. So anyway. Yeah. Thank you, well, Bruce. thank you. No, thank you, John. And thanks for, um, hey, thanks thanks for the interview. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for thinking of me. Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. You're behind. Mm. If you can't tell, you're behind so much music that matters to me. And I've been oh. wanting to do, uh, for us to do this for years. And so thanks for doing it. There you have it, Bruce Woolley. Isn't that interesting? So many fascinating things that he's done. And I love that part at the end when he just randomly mentions Chris Thompson, who I had just talked to. If you aren't a regular listener of the show, Chris was our guest two weeks ago. And uh, this little project didn't come up in that conversation, but it did here. It's, I love that when, you know, we find out that guests know each other that we didn't know. And there's all these connect, you know, connective tissue between everybody. I love it. Anyway, I wanted to close it out with another, there were a lot of things to pick, but I wanted to showcase that Camera Club album one more time. This is Clean Clean from that Camera Club album called English Garden. And I want to play it because I just loved that early, nervy new wave music when people were still creating it and inventing it and figuring out what it even was. Bruce was one of those people. So anyway, thank you, Bruce, for making this happen. I'm, it was so cool to talk to him. So next week, our guest is we're going up to the 90s. And we're talking with a woman who is one of the, I don't know, one of the key voices, I would think, of of pop rock in the 90s. So it's a beautiful conversation with a really lovely person. I hope you guys will come back and check that one out with us then, too. A huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do, including producing all these fantastic episodes. You guys know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We have, as I've mentioned before, a bunch of deep dives in the can. One of those may come out this week. I don't know. It just depends on our schedules. But if not, we will talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody.
Blue Green.